and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 259, Operation C, Japan Attacks Hong Kong. Last time, Major General Christopher M. Maltby, the British officer in command of the Commonwealth forces in Hong Kong, had been waiting for the anvil, in the form of an overwhelming Japanese force, to come crashing on his head. That moment arrived on Sunday, December 8th, local time, while the general had been about to attend a church service. It was just hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor had begun. In the coming battle, the Japanese would have every advantage. More men, more artillery, more ships, and their ace, more fighters and bombers. As such, the British general was not expected by London to hold the vital port city and its surrounding territory, but to hold out as long as possible. And yet, when Maltby was told that he was receiving two additional Canadian battalions in September of 1941, the defense of Hong Kong was altered, or rather returned to a previous version, in where the gin drinkers line up in the new territories would now be defended by three infantry battalions. The 2nd Royal Scots, the 5th Battalion of the 7th Regiment Rajputs, the 2nd Battalion of the 14th Regiment Punjab, and parts of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps, made up mostly of Eurasians, with artillery support from the Hong Kong and Singapore Royal Artillery and the Coastal Artillery Units. The island itself was to be held by three other infantry battalions, the 1st Middlesex, the Royal Rifles of Canada, and the Winnipeg Grenadiers, who were all supported by the bulk of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps. One company from each battalion was kept back in reserve. As these changes were not effected until mid-November 1941, the details, such as communications, artillery and mortar placement and support, were not fully in place when the Japanese crossed over the Shenzhen River. Lieutenant General Sakai Takashi, the commander of the 23rd Army of the China Southern Expeditionary Army Group, was ordered to have his plans for the attack on Hong Kong completed by the end of November. Operation C, as it was to be called, was to be over in just 10 days. But as we have seen, when the Japanese found out about the recently arrived Canadian troops, Sakai asked for and received additional men and artillery. The attackers would enjoy a 4-to-1 advantage in manpower. With such a predominance of troops, the Japanese would be rather straightforward in their attack. There would be three main thrusts hitting the Commonwealth troops along the left, center, and right of their defensive line in the new territories. On the Japanese right in the west, that force would go along the Castle Peak Road along the coast to secure it. This would allow them to hit the Jin Drinker's Line on its farthest left flank, on the Lai Chi Kok Peninsula, just below Jin Drinker's Bay. The center force would hit the defenders in the middle of the line and exploit any openings as pressure was put on both ends. The Japanese left, marching down the east coast, would send men to the Kai Tak Airport, as well as make for Devil's Peak in the southeast corner of the mainland. 
see the episode cover, to neutralize a major battery position there. General Sakai's plan was to hit the defending troops in the new territories hard and fast enough so they could not retreat. Thus, the island below would still have enemy troops on it, but it would be cut off from any help and surrounded by the invaders' ships and overhead by their air forces. It would have no choice but to surrender. Yet, if Maltby was foolish enough to resist, then Sakai would have the troops on hand and in position to cross over and take the island. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The various Japanese forces began to move south on December 1st, from Guangzhou, Canton, occupied in the fall of 1938, and nearby areas, to the northwest of Hong Kong, and from Mears Bay to the northeast of Hong Kong that had landed a few days previous. But they were all making for the city of Shenzhen, just above the British-controlled New Territories. It was the last stages of these movements that were reported to Maltby on December 7th, while he was at church. He gave the order for all forces to stand, too. Now, it was just a matter of waiting. At 3.55 a.m. local time on December 8th, the Japanese headquarters put out the radio message, Blossom, Blossom. Eleven minutes later, General Sakai officially gave the order to start the invasion of Hong Kong. Just under an hour later, as the Japanese columns were advancing south, the senior intelligence officer, Major Charles Boxer, who spoke fluent Japanese, heard Radio Tokyo tell its own citizens that war with the Western powers was imminent. This was passed on to Governor Mark Young and Major General Maltby, At 6.45 a.m., the entire garrison was informed that the British Empire and Japan were at war. As we have already seen, at 8 a.m., Japanese fighters and bombers hit the Kai-Tak airport, destroying the garrison's wildebeests, walruses, and the few biplanes of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps, thus making the skies safe for the invaders. True, these planes were obsolete, but could have been used for reconnaissance. 
not that it mattered now. The first line of defense for Maltby was having the bridges over the Shinzen River blown, and this was done at 6.45 a.m. But the Japanese were ready for this and immediately began constructing their own crossways. On the Japanese right, British left, came the 230th Regiment. In the center, the 228th Regiment. Along the east coast came the 229th Regiment. As the land was at its widest, crossing the Shenzhen, when the Japanese first came into contact with Commonwealth forces, be they the Punjabis, the Hong Kong Volunteer Corps, or the Second Royal Scots, troops were sent to engage them, but the majority of the invaders simply went around them, because they could, as speed was of the essence. But that didn't always work out for the Japanese. At one point, after the Punjabis saw what the enemy was doing, they set up an ambush. At 1 p.m., the invaders on the Japanese left came into contact with defenders, and so moved around them, as they had earlier, but ended up walking into a well-set-up crossfire. The surviving Japanese pulled back again and went around this. As some of those on the Japanese left were halfway between the Shinzen River and the Jin Drinkers Line, they fell for this trap again near Taipo, but this time several platoons of ten men each were wiped out before they could extricate themselves. To be sure, the Japanese were gobbling up much of the new territory on that first day, but their rush to push south cost them lives. Besides the success of the Punjabis, the Hong Kong volunteers were also able to inflict impressive casualties with their Bren carriers and armored cars. The same could be said for the reconnaissance platoon of the Second Royal Scots with their Bren carriers. Their kills were in the west along the coast, about 10 miles south of the Shenzhen River. Their victims were the men of the 229th Regiment. Still, the Japanese came south, using captured British maps and, more importantly, local guides made up of fifth colonists. Late in the afternoon on the first day, the most forward positions of the Commonwealth troops were deemed untenable, hence they all began to fall back, if they had not done so by now. The Punjabis, besides their successful ambushes, had already backpedaled to the grassy hill, about three miles north of the Gin Drinkers Line. This pullback was made official early the next morning, on December 9th. Maltby ordered that all his units on the mainland pull back to the gin drinker's line. Enemy casualties had been inflicted, but the invaders had not been slowed down. Either way, it was time to make a stand. As the Commonwealth troops were still making their way south, the Punjabis, on the right end of the line, were holed up along the coast of Tide Cove. This was, hopefully, to hold up the invaders so the rest of the mainland forces could fall back. Yet this pullback needed to be mutually supportive, lest gaps appear in the retreating line. Elements of the Hong Kong Volunteer Force were already behind the Punjabis, but there was a hole forming between the 2nd Royal Scots and the 2nd Battalion Punjab. So Maltby ordered the Reserve Company D of the 5th Battalion of the 7th Rajput's Regiment, commanded by Captain Newton's, to fill the gap. This put them on the steep, 
but low peaks of Smuggler's Ridge, located left of center of the Defender's Line. As previously covered, it was about this time that the few civilian aircraft that survived the bombing raids and strafing of the previous morning took off, taking with them such august persons as the wife of Dr. Sun Yat-sen and her two famous Sung sisters, who would affect history in Asia for years to come. One last passenger was Lieutenant Colonel H. Owen Hughes, who was given the secret mission to work with the Chinese Nationalist Army to help Hong Kong by persuading the Chinese to attack the Japanese from the rear. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Near the left end of the gin drinker's line, the defensive line takes a sharp turn to the south, in the direction of Gin Drinker's Bay. Just above that sharp turn is the Jubilee Reservoir, and nearby, on the southeast end of that, is the Jubilee Dam, the tallest one of the British Empire. Also on that sharp turn is the Shing Moon Redoubt. This consisted of five pillboxes and an artillery observation post, which also served as its headquarters. The formation was thus, starting at roughly the noon position and going around a clock. Closest to the reservoir was pillbox 402. To the east-southeast of it was pillboxes 401A and B. Directly south of these two was pillbox 400. And due west of 400 was 403. But in between 400 and 403 at the 6 o'clock position and more to the south, was the observation post and headquarters. The pillboxes were made of reinforced concrete and steel doors, all connected directly or indirectly by underground concrete tunnels. Manning the redoubt was a part of the 2nd Royal Scots, the 1st Hong Kong Regiment, and other British and Indian soldiers. The problem was, given the redoubt's importance and size, it was critically undermanned. In all, there were some three officers and 25 men. Opposing them were 150 Japanese troops with about 1,500 additional men in reserve. The Japanese could not know the exact numbers, of course, but Colonel Doi Tehichi, commanding officer of the 228th Regiment, suspected the extreme disparity. At 3 p.m. on December 9th, Colonel Doi was on Needle Hill, just above the Gin Junkers Line and just east of the reservoir. For the last two hours, he had been walking near the British line. Though he didn't see any troops, obviously they were keeping their heads down, he did see their washing hanging on lines. To his thinking, this clearly showed the enemy's lax discipline. Besides, there wasn't that much washing hanging up. Just then, a heavy fog rolled in, followed by rain. Every fiber of Doi's being told him 
This was the place to attack. The enemy could be overwhelmed here, and a hole created that his entire regiment could pour through. But there were several problems to taking this action. First, the weather had made him lose touch with his battalions. He had gone on ahead to reconnoiter, and now did not know exactly how to get back to his local headquarters. Next, technically speaking, the Shin Moon Redoubt was not within his area of responsibility. It was close, but Army discipline did not allow officers to work outside their given areas. And lastly, when his battalions did move forward, their artillery was not with them, because the Hong Kong volunteers had been able to damage the Taipo Road enough to slow them down. Yet Doi ignored all of this, thinking if he was successful, all would be forgiven, and that feeling stayed with him. This was the place. So he decided to attack. His second battalion of about 800 men would swing left or east and find a route to take while looking for actual enemy troops. Next, his 3rd Battalion of the 228th Regiment would take a more direct line and lead the actual attack. 150 volunteers stepped forward to act as the tip of the spear. That night of the 9th, at least half of the Commonwealth defenders at the Shin Moon Redoubt were inside the observation post, the headquarters, furthest south. The other half were out on patrol, around the pillboxes to the north. By 6 p.m. that evening, the main attacking force of the Japanese were about 500 meters from the dam, readying themselves. Yet they were about to lose the element of surprise, as at 10 p.m. 2nd Lieutenant Thompson, commander of the 8th platoon, and eight of his men set out on patrol. He was told to head north to make sure that the southern side of Needle Hill was clear. This was done, and the 8th platoon returned at 10.20 p.m. Somehow, Thompson and his men had not detected the 150 volunteer force, nor the two supporting battalions, and the closest of them had been only 500 meters away. But even before this, the Japanese were on the move. Lieutenant Kasugai, one of the commanders of the 150-man volunteer tip of the spear, had already let his men past the dam, past one of the unmanned enemy checkpoints, and by 9.30 p.m. was just south of pillbox 401B. By 10 p.m., 2nd Lieutenant Yamada had led his men south to cut through several lines of barbed wire. Lieutenant Wakabayashi and his first platoon would attack pillbox 403, just northwest of headquarters. And though H-hour had been set for 11 p.m., the Japanese were not the first to fire. Just minutes before H-hour came, Lance Corporal J. Laird, stationed at pillbox 401B on the northeast corner of the pillboxes, heard a noise from the bushes near him, and, calculating that it wasn't any of his comrades on patrol, opened fire. The Japanese closest to him responded with grenades, gunfire, and then rushed both 401 pillboxes. Some entered the tunnels. Other attackers went onto higher ground, found the air vents, 
and tossed in several grenades. This commotion was heard by Corporal Campbell at Pillbox 402 to the northwest of 401, so he turned his Vickers machine gun towards 401 and let loose. Men of Doy's 3rd Battalion were caught flat-footed by Campbell, though it had to be more luck than anything else, but several of them went down. Platoon Sergeant Robb, who had gone on patrol with 2nd Lieutenant Thompson, heard the machine gun fire from 402 and put together a force to counterattack. In all, 13 men went out. Yet the Japanese by now were all around them. Whenever Robb's force engaged a hostile group, another was nearby to fire into his flanks. Robb started losing men. After four of them fell, he pulled back. But then he lost a fifth. Soon the Japanese were all around them, taking them prisoner. But Private Jardine was able to slip into the jungle. As both sides were firing freely, some of the Royal Scots and Indian sentries in the most northern positions, just below the reservoir, lost their nerve and on their own retreated south to the headquarters. By now, reports of the attack had made it back to headquarters at the Observatory Outlook. Brigadier Cedric Wallace, in local command, ordered that a counterattack be launched to drive the Japanese back, and 2nd Lieutenant Thompson was ordered to carry this out. But as he and his team tried to exit the observation outlook, they found that the door was locked from the outside. Worse, by now, 2nd Lieutenant Mochizuki and his platoon had reached the observatory outlook and were trying to force their way in. A comic but tragic episode to be sure. Both groups were trying to kill each other, but were separated by a locked door. Turns out a private who had been given the key and sent on an errand had locked the door as he left, thinking it prudent. So as the fighting was getting underway, the three senior officers were locked inside the OP with their men. Hey everyone, Ray here. I wanted to tell you again about the Ridge Wallet but I am not going to repeat what I've said before. I wanted to let you know that I took my Ridge wallet with me to Scotland, and it was a lifesaver. Everything I needed, nothing I didn't, right there in my front pocket, safe from the pickpockets, and not digging into me. It is truly a minimalist front pocket wallet that will be the last wallet you'll ever buy. As for my paper money, that fit easily, once folded, in between the durable elastic band and one of the metal planes. All nice and snug, nothing fell out, nothing was lost. And remember, you can get titanium, carbon fiber, or aluminum. Do yourself a favor, and you ladies too, have all your necessities in one small, sleek container. Join the more than 250,000 men and women who have switched and decluttered their lives. Especially if you're going traveling. The Ridge made a world of difference to me. So get 10% off today with free worldwide shipping by going to ridgewallet.com ww2. That's ridgewallet.com ww2. And use the code ww2. The fighting continued. But by 1 a.m. of December 10th, the men of the Shin Moon Redoubt were either locked inside or were retreating 
to the south to join the 5th Rajput Battalion. By now, most of the pillboxes had been neutralized, except 402, ironically, the most northern one. The men there kept up the fight and kept the Japanese from gaining entrance. This lasted until 2.30 a.m., when Major Nishiyana and his second company forced explosives down the 402's air vent, killing all inside. Earlier, when the attack first began, a Rajput unit had been on patrol, just southwest of the dam. There, they practically ran into 200 Japanese soldiers. Both sides opened fire, and for a while the Rajputs held it together, even driving the enemy back a ways. But in time, and with numbers, the invaders would overcome. But this pause allowed other forces further west to leave Castle Peak Road and set up another small defensive line. This would collapse, too, in the small hours of the morning, but the Indians had done their job. Before the sun came up on December 10th, the observation post, the headquarters, was lost, which severed communications throughout the redoubt. Without proper coordination, the last of the British-led positions were overrun. By 4 a.m. of the 10th, the redoubt was in Japanese hands. That other parts of the gin drinkers' line were still fighting didn't matter. The left or western end had been breached. Come morning, the Japanese could pour men through this hole and encircle the rest of the line. When Maltby realized this, before the day was out, he would order a general withdrawal back to the island. The defense of Hong Kong would have to be fought there. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I'm back from my trip with my family to Scotland. Uh, we went to Edinburgh. I got to meet Paul Finch, my tech guru who's been saving my life for years, and his lovely family. Uh, we went to Edinburgh, Inverness, St. Andrews, Glasgow, and the Island of Skye. And if you haven't been to Scotland, and I'm sure you've heard this a billion times, and if you're like me, you've watched YouTube videos. Yes, it's all beautiful. The people are nice and the food is great, but the land will win you over. The train ride from Edinburgh to Inverness was fantastic. I mean, it's beyond words, but the land awes you and then just keeps on awing you and you don't get numb. It's just, it's just incredible, especially sky. So if you ever get a chance, please go to Scotland. You'll have a great time. Just don't do what we did and go during festival season. A little crazy, a little crazy. Um, for you members, um, I just want to let you know that I'm working on another episode now, so I will have that out soon so we can keep the story of the Waffen SS going. And uh, we're going to get back into a regular routine. Before I went to Scotland, I think I was doing pretty well doing one show a week for like four or five weeks. And that is what I hope to return to doing. So um, I'm back. I'm back into the routine now. Um, well, hopefully we can keep this going and keep going through operation number one and then obviously expand our horizon from there. So thank you for your patience. And um, yeah, if you want to support the show, become a member, uh, give me a review on iTunes, whatever you can do to help out. I appreciate it. Um, but I'm back and we're going to jump back into this because I'm learning a lot and having a lot of fun doing this, even though we're talking about war. I know that sounds weird, but I find it all fascinating. So um, thank you for your patience and uh, I'll see 
you as soon as I can with the Battle of Hong Kong Island proper. Take care, everyone.